Welcome to Her Talks, a conversation on why women's health matters now, presented by Her Health EQ. My name is Greta Mauck. I'm the content developer for Her Health EQ, a global nonprofit focused on deploying medical equipment to improve women's health in underserved regions worldwide. At Her Health EQ, we believe that women are the cornerstone of the family unit and communities at large. And when we give women in under-resourced geographies the tools they need to survive and thrive, the benefits clearly extend to their children, families, and nations as a whole. Her Talks is our quarterly panel with innovators, researchers, healthcare professionals, philanthropy experts, and more, where we discuss how we can use our strengths to achieve women's health equity. This is our first ever episode of Her Talks to be released in podcast format. It is also the first ever episode that was recorded in person at our International Women's Day event. At this event, Her Healthy Q partnered with Jerusalem Venture Partners and East Park Drive to host inspired members of the community for an evening of networking and conversation, helping to bring equity and equality to women around the world. In this episode of Her Talks, Her Healthy Q is joined by Jacqueline Banks, the Executive Director of the New York City Commission on Gender Equity, and Marissa Fayer, the CEO of Her Healthy Q. Banks and Fayer discuss intersectional approaches to women's issues and New York City efforts in women's equity, specifically caregiving, maternal and reproductive health, and COVID. Jacqueline Banks has been the executive director of the New York City Commission on Gender Equity for five years. In this role, she has leveraged the power of city government to expand and increase opportunity for all New Yorkers, regardless of sex, gender, or sexual orientation, in order to build a city that is safe and free from discrimination. Previously, she served as the executive director of the Women's City Club of New York and as the vice president of programs at the New York Women's Foundation. Marissa Fayer is the founder and CEO of Her Healthy Q. She's a 22-year veteran of the medtech industry, was included among the top 100 women in medtech by Medical Design and Outsourcing in 2018, a People Maven's top woman activist to watch, and a recipient of the Africa Development Award in the same year. Both of their social media accounts, photos from the event, and anything you hear in this panel, including a transcript, will be available in the show notes at www.herhealtheq.org slash her-talks. I am so excited to share with you volume nine of Her Talks, Women and Girls Issues. We focus specifically on women in emerging markets, and um, we're already deployed in nine countries. We've helped 33,000 women already. Um, We've deployed... um, 31 pieces of equipment, because it changes continuously, so I have to look at my notes. And um, we've repurposed uh, over $210,000 worth of equipment um, from landfill. And so, um, and what we do is we focus on non-communicable diseases um, that affect women. So maternal health, heart disease, and cancers that affect women, such as uh, breast cancer, cervical cancer, it depends on the region as well. What we do is we also take a, a collaborative ap- approach. So we don't force our ideas on anybody else. We also don't set up clinics. We have people come to us or we reach out to them and they tell us what they need. And then we make sure that we go and get that and procure that. A lot of the times we deal in um, ultrasounds and fetal monitors, heart rate monitors, maternal health uh, monitoring systems. Um, so... These are just things, you know, colposcopes actually have a very large cervical cancer screening program in 10 countries we're working to deploy right now. We've just finished that in uh, Costa Rica, and uh, we're, we're, we're working to deploy in nine other countries, so that's very exciting. And um, that project alone will help 500,000 women a year screen for cervical cancer, things that we do every single year nobody else has access to. And this is with equipment 
that is handheld. It's easy. We're not talking, I'm not talking about a massive MRI machine. We're talking about things that are accessible. Um, you know, we have 10 pieces of ultrasound, handheld ultrasound equipment, literally in, in our corporate garage. And we're about to deploy those for maternal health screenings. These are, these are things that are easy. Um, so that's what we do. And listen, it, it probably seems weird on International Women's Month and considering that we're an international organization, like why would we have anybody from New York City? Because I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's a weird concept, I understand, but you know, what we do locally, we have to scale globally. And if we don't do it here, how are we expected to do it anywhere else? And very, very lucky to, to, to be able to have Jackie here because New York City is doing some really interesting things related to gender equity, related to diversity, related to women's health. And so we're going to have an opportunity, have Jackie here. And one of the other things that we do often is one, at least once a quarter, we have a, a speaker series called Her Talks. Um, it's where we get just smart people around, you know, around, around a, really a Zoom. Uh, we started in the pandemic, um, but this is our first one live, so we're kind of very excited about it. Um, and so we'll be able to kind of put that out, and we have everything in, you know, in visual and, and podcast form. So um, thank you, Jackie, for it's being here. Um, I'll let you, if you want to do your quick intro, okay. but um, Jackie is the executive director of the New York City Commissioner on, Commission on Gender Equity. And um, we met many years ago, and we still can't figure out how. Um, <laughs> in somebody's apartment, and we gravitated towards each other, but we don't know who that person was. So I apologize if you're here. But um, yeah, yeah, we'll figure. We literally will figure it out one day. But um, you know, so much has. I don't. Do you want to do an intro? Or you want to go straight in? Well, let me start. Yes, you start. Thank you so much okay. for having me here, and it's great to be in person again as we brave, you know, COVID's still around, but we're going to keep braving and yeah. moving it through. Um, the Commission on Gender Equity is the latest iteration of what you may be familiar with called the Commission on the Status of Women, okay? And so in 1975, I'm going to give you this history, when the women's rights movement was in full force, uh, Mayor Beam created the first ever Commission on the Status of Women in New York City. And at that time, and until 2015, you had a high-profile chair and one executive director. And fast forward to 2015, then Mayor Bill de Blasio launched the Commission on Gender Equity. And notice the name change. Talk about that. And then in 2016, the legislature, for the first time ever in New York City, made this body a permanent part of city government by creating local law, then 45. That's a really powerful shift because it says that I may not be as large as the NYPD, but I'm here to stay as much as the NYPD is here to stay, right? And that's a victory for women. But also, let's look at the victory in the name change. It's a 21st, um, 21st century understanding of gender. That gender is about gender identity, gender expression, and that we really need to reflect the gender spectrum when we talk about eliminating gender discrimination from our government, from society, and building a gender equitable world, right? And so that's, that's where the Commission on Gender Equity comes in. 
We operate with three principles. First, gender is diverse. Second, we have an intersectional lens. That's really important. Our law, new law in 2020 got amended, says that we're to work to look at issues that affect women, girls, intersex, transgender, gender non-binary, and gender non-conforming New Yorkers, right? And that's really powerful. But also, we then say, based on that law, that we want to do this with an intersectional lens, meaning nobody enters a space with one single identity. I enter a space as an immigrant woman. 40 years ago, I was 20 when I first came here. <laughs> 42 years ago. Now I enter a space as an immigrant woman, black, 62 years of age, totally different, right? Um, mother, ex-wife, all kinds of things. Very different. Some of them you can see, but some you can't. You don't see my faith. You have no sense of the physical and emotional challenges I face. Some of my disabilities and abilities are visual. Most aren't, right? And so we really have to remember those things, that intersectional lens when we create policy. And the third principle we have is that the city needs to lead. That when we promulgate laws for other sectors, we need to be, as a city, a best-in-class employer. That we need to do it for our workforce. One, it's just good to live the talk. But two, when you go through the pain yourself, you can, you're better informed to help others make the shift. And that's our goal, and that's what, those are the, the platforms that we stand on. We have three areas of focus, economic mobility and opportunities, one, health and reproductive justice, two, and the third is safety. In the same way that our identities are intersectional, these issues are intersectional. Somebody is well-positioned economically, they certainly have better health outcomes, except black women who at high have regardless of educational level and um, socioeconomic level, have poor health, uh, maternal health outcomes. It's, it's the scariest. I read that data and I put the, the book down. I just, yeah, okay, maternal health is one of the key factors, especially here in New York City, mm -hmm. that it is increasing. Exactly. And the fact that it's, we're supposed to be the most you know, evolved, you know, country in the world, uh, you know, and more, most advanced, and our maternal health statistics are dramatically going down and disproportionately in black, black communities and, and brown communities. Black and brown communities. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. And then that also implies for safety. Although we know, and I was sharing with a group today, that even if you are high income, your safety at home is not guaranteed, right? So the intimate partner violence. So this intersectional lens is so critical for the way we do our policy work. And then... I just, I will say this and then stop. We also say that we're engaged in culture change. We're engaged in paradigm shift. We're moving from a society that's built on discrimination, on patriarchy, on racism, on sexism, to a society that's multicultural, gender inclusive, and intersectional, right? And what does that look like? And it really has a lot to do with our political systems and our economic systems as well. But there are four factors that we think need to operate, at least four. I'm sure there are more, but there are four that we could figure. One is you have to have laws that really create this version that's built into a multicultural space and an inclusive space. Two, 
you have to have interagency, that's the city agencies need to work together, collaboration, and we have to have cross-sector collaboration. If we don't have public, nonprofit, and, and private sectors working together, we're not going to create this shift, this systemic shift that we need. Three, we have to have research, and that research has to be both quantitative and qualitative. And we need to analyze that data, and we need to publish that data, and we need to be informed by that data to create our policy, to develop our programs. And five, four, we must, can't count. <laughs> we need to have public engagement, and education. We need to learn from the public the change that needs to occur. And when we believe we have created the intervention, we need to engage the public to say, did we do what you wanted us to do? And that loop, that feedback loop, is a critical part of creating culture shift as well. And so we think those four things need to work together they're not active at all times, but they need to come together in order to create, we think, this, this systemic shift. And that's how we look at gender equity. The commission itself has 32 members. They are 26 are appointed by the mayor, five are appointed by the speaker of the city council, and one member is our ex officio, who is a chair and commissioner of the city's commission and human rights. And I must say, my colleague, Carlos Manzano, deputy executive director, for communications and public engagement is also here with me tonight. Did I get everything? <laughs> don't worry, there's still time. We still, I still have 40 hundred questions, so don't worry. Um, so a lot's changed since COVID, since Dobbs most recently. Um, you know, you were speaking a lot about what you're doing at, you know, at the commission. So how does this affect specifically, and a lot of your work, how does this affect women? And then obviously all people, but you know, as, as it's International Women's Month, and obviously we're a women's focused company, um, how does this affect women? Mm -hmm. um, so, or, or what are some of the most exciting things that you're working on maybe focused on towards women? Ooh, so today's also equal pay day. It is equal pay day. Oh, yeah. we, had, yes. we had an equal pay day rally today. Mm -hmm. um, it's also we pie day, and I did have like a slice of pizza, it, it so I will. <laughs> and, and we're sitting yeah. in the midst of Women's History Month in Correct. the United States, but also this is CSW, Commission on Status of Women, 67th, and the UN, so yes. a lot of, this is a big It's month. a big for us. COVID-19. When it happened, one of the things we launched, which were totally unscientific, non-random survey, that we, we launched it in June, let me pause, 2020. We created this longitudinal survey, which wanted to focus on, never thinking that we'd have this pandemic for two years, how do we shape a gender equitable recovery post-COVID-19? And we put it on the web. And the questions we asked, one of the things we wanted to make sure in the demographic section, that we were able to capture this intersectional lens. So we went out with, um, you know, sexual orientation as um, lesbian, gay, asexual, pansexual. You know, we really were very comprehensive and deep. Gender identity, what's your gender identity? Male, female, transgender, gender non-binary. You know, we, we tried to build this discipline to collect the data to say we want to be able to tell a full story and an intersectional story. 
the, the importance of the survey was to follow a group of folk through a year. And every four months or so or three months we released. So it became a three-part uh, survey. Um, one of the things we learned was we were all depressed and anxious. And, and that was frightening. It was particularly frightening in the TGNB space because we had such a small sample and they were like 100%. We had 2% and, and, and their, their rates of panic and depression was 100%. It was massive. So th th that data to us struck so underrepresented and yet such great stress. Um, was it bifurcated specifically in borough? Yeah, we tried to do okay. it in borough too, but but the data, I, I oh, don't okay. remember that yeah, off the that's top okay. of my that's head. Um, the other thing that struck us was clearly the need for childcare. Um, it just, and, and the benefits that the stimulus monies were providing for families, right? Um, did that need come from women filling out the survey or men filling out the survey? We, or had, both? we had both. Okay. So, so we had both, but, but it just, be, and one of the things we sort of realized is that in shifts of responsibility, nothing was changing for women. It kind of, oh, so equal more. pay day didn't matter or equal no, day didn't matter. No, no, no. It, it, so okay. the COVID, no matter what was happening in COVID, women still took on more. Nothing mm -hmm. changed in terms of their responsibilities at home. So there was that incredible burden. So we knew coming out of COVID, as we moved towards this, that we have got to look at universal childcare. And so when we did our annual report that we're required to do as a commission, we listed universal childcare, universal healthcare. I mean, the level of panic in terms of mental health was, was scary to us. And I shouldn't call it panic, just depression, anxiety. It, we were off the charts. Um, and then there was the issues around healthcare, non-COVID related healthcare, that we knew we were falling by the wayside, right? And so that was the picture. We're hoping we sent the data to another data team that does the analysis a little bit stronger and we have a meeting on Thursday. So hopefully they can get more. But it's totally unscientific, but I think it started to touch on the points that we've all seen, you know, you have to, we have to have a system that has a stronger care support for caregivers. And I think as a result, the city council passed a law that they unfortunately called the Marshall Plans for Moms Task Force, and which we sort of were trying to say then caregivers, maybe, <laughs> you know, make it gender neutral. Um, maybe we learned something about breaking gender stereotypes, you know. Um, so we have this Marshall Plan for Moms Task Force that I get to chair as the head of the Commission on Gender Equity. And so we have about a year and a half to put out a report looking at what supports are needed in our city in order to strengthen that resource for caregivers. And so I think, you know, we, we saw these efforts and then the city is responding with legislation and then we have to study the issue, but we're going to look at it across age and across socioeconomic status, right? So that we can really begin to think about what is the safety net, lack of a better term, that you provide for caregivers in order 
to support them as, as they do their work and that our, our children and our elderly folk are well taken care of. So that's just what COVID meant. And I think we're still unpacking that, you know, social supports that we need to provide. The other thing that came up, quite frankly, is remote work. You know, and um, we have taken a hit as a city. And so I know the mayor is now looking at this and, and um, in one of our, our largest union just completed negotiations for contracts and they have set up a task force to look at remote work. What, what the mayor is very concerned about is that this remote work option would be available to those who are higher incomes. And so he's, his equity lens is really yes. strong around that, right? So he, he wants to be deliberate and equitable as, as he does this. Uh, so let me just say, yeah, is there, yeah. am I missing anything? No, no, I think that's great. So, you know, obviously we're focused on women's health mm -hmm. and um, Mayor Adams was very uh, vocal in January about announcing he would like to have New York City as the city of women's health. Mm -hmm. So um, what, uh, what's, what's the fun work that you're doing on that or <laughs> great, that's happening? Um, because um, there's, there's a lot that's happening. There's a lot still to happen um, yeah. because as we were talking about, uh, he might have announced it without much uh, discussion with other people. Um, so, uh, so there's a lot of work, especially on the government level, to kind of work through that. Yeah. But, you know, would love to hear just a little tidbit of what's happening on women's health here in New York City that maybe we can then be able to translate to the rest of the world. Or maybe if there's, you know, ways that they're trying to introduce or foster technology mm -hmm. here, you know, just like JVP is doing, you know, how else... Can 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 on a government mm -hmm. level can foster innovation and changes mm -hmm. to women's health. Thank you for that. I, I think I want. Did you to, think I was not going to ask you that? <laughs> no. I, I want to lead that with um, male allyship. Yes. Um, mayor Adams is the first mayor. It's the hundred and tenth male mayor <laughs> of New York City but the first to appoint four female first step and deputy mayors ever, okay? And that's major. That means the top and his chief of staff is female. So the top five positions, him, his first deputy mayor, she's Sheena Wright, um, deputy mayor for workforce and economic development is Maria Torres Springer, deputy mayor for operations is Mira Joshi, and Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services, Anne Williams Isom. And then we have a Deputy Mayor for Public Safety who is Phil Banks, okay? For the first time ever, we have women and women of color in leadership in this city, determining the budget, determining the investments we make, depending on how and when we make them, okay? There are two men on that team. Mayor Adams in his personal life, and when you talk, I feel I can say this, when he talks, it's about his mother and his sisters. And his mother was a single mom who really scraped things together to move five kids through. And it's, it's really powerful to hear him speak about that. And so when he comes to this work, it's with the heart of supporting and remembering his mother's efforts. And he, on January 17th, he launched the Women's Health Agenda and gave a one, if you ever can 
go and see this video. I thought it was very powerful. Um, it was, you know, we were there listening um, as it was being streamed. And the mayor started to talk about the fact that women's health has lagged because it takes about 10 years for us, A, to begin to look at women, to include them in trials, and then to find the solution. And how unacceptable that was. Mm -hmm. And then he was able to talk about the impact of that economically in terms of their safety, et cetera. He then talked about health, both from the reproductive justice space and from what we call the chronic diseases space and the mental health space, right? And what's interesting is as he does, he talks about this, he has this 30,000 foot view, but he also links it very much as he was growing, he saw his mother's struggles as a result. So he gets to a point where he's talking about menopause and he can talk about, and I've never heard, and I've not been through many male mayors, you know, I'm thinking I'm old, but not that old, um, <laughs> of the 110, but never before have I heard a male mayor talk, and, and you know, the mayor said, we would get so, fur so much further if we would only learn to say the word vagina. That was when I knew we were having a serious conference. I was just like, okay, he said that. I don't think that. any other mayors have said the word <laughs> vagina in a press right? conference either. And he, he was clear, not a smile, very straight, very direct. And it was so, it, it felt like a warm hug, but it also felt like progress. Okay? And, um, and that was powerful to us. In that press conference, he relaunched the Sexual Health Education Task Force, which I had had the opportunity to chair about five years prior. We released a report in 2018, and then COVID hit, and the whole implementation process kind of fell apart from us. But the important thing about that task force, it was focused on sexual health education for youth in the public school system. And it talked about, the, the, one of our key findings was, when we talk about sexual health education, it needs to be within the context of a healthy relationship, right? It doesn't exist outside. And we want to make sure that it's a community, the school community is engaged in this process. And what should that look like? We had these, it's a multidisciplinary team. It was really a very powerful task force. COVID comes and it derails us. So I was super excited when he was the first point in his press release and I'm like, oh wow, he's committed to it. And he was very excited to have us teach our young people what it meant to be in healthy relationships, platonic, otherwise, and then how you built a sexual relationship, healthy sexual relationship from that. So that's one very powerful piece. We're going to be doing things about women and work and menopause. He said that very clearly in his, 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 his press conference. And he also announced, which I think many of us were surprised, that we were going to have a Women's Health <laughs> Summit <laughs> in March. In March, for International Women's And Month. so we ended up with, uh, I can say, although it's going to be a very, very small summit because it's just the time we had to turn it around, um, it's going to be the 30th of March, an afternoon group of sort of selected experts. I think it will grow beyond this, but it's really a powerful piece of work and we're all engaged as city agencies, you know, looking at it and working on it. So I think there was this very deep commitment. And, and in addition, prior to that, I'm, I'm taking my notes here because it really is astounding. He expanded the citywide doula program. 
And so providing free access to doulas for families, in, especially in the neighborhoods that have greatest needs. And we've identified through COVID, we've identified 33 neighborhoods across the city. And, and so, and doulas, quite honestly, the whole idea of doulas actually comes from the rest of the world. And so right. it's almost as if, you know, bringing the rest of the world to New York and bringing, mm -hmm. these, bringing these practices actually to New York to improve right. our maternal health, because that's the only way that in different communities we're going to be able to, exactly. you know, improve. And, and improve it's so health. directly connected to communities of color, particularly Correct. the black community, Correct. right? Correct. And the black community, when you're going to the South, you have a history, you have midwives who delivered thousands of babies and nobody died, yeah. right? In days gone by Correct. when we didn't have. So it's, it's a real powerful connection. And so I think we have, uh, as of 2023, we've served more than a thousand families with trained doulas and um, what, more than 200 experienced and new doulas are trained by the program and the model. How many single moms? I don't have that number. Doulas for single moms should be... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we, we should look at that, right? Uh, this is the intersectional piece. And so one of the things as well is that there is a data collection mechanism, right? With the DOHMH to gather data on births and care with midwives. So we can begin, as they say, to lead with the facts and figures. And that, that's really important. Um, so I just, you know, we're, we're busy as a city identifying the big issues and then breaking down ways to resolve them. And the issue, I can confidently say, because we have a leadership that engages and embraces women and the diversity of gender, when we... Every city single agency has received that message and is working in lockstep with it. Now, we all have different levels of resources and certainly different levels of strengths, but um, we're working at it. Complementing us is the city council. And for, for the first time in New York City's history, we have the majority of our city council are women, women of color, and diverse in terms of sexual orientation as well. 31 of 51 members wow. never happened before, hands down. And so we have this powerful base of women, and trust me, you know, they're not letting the city breathe. <laughs> but it's, it's, they're so committed to centering. I hope this is not on tape. I don't. Um, but it is, there's just this discipline that we have this opportunity because we're in places of power that we've never been before, at a scale that we've never had before. And so the mandate is transformation. It's just absolutely transformation. And you know, times are hard and we've got to show up differently. Dobbs has occurred and New York City named itself a sanctuary city. We have an abortion access hub. Right, that it's online and you can go from many places to identify how you can find and acquire, obtain an abortion here in New York City. We'll be here to support you. We've funded the, the um, national, I'm, I'm going to say the wrong thing, so the abortion fund that we have for low-income women here. And so there's a, our Department of Health and Mental Hygiene is, is phenomenal and working aggressively around this issue. So probably our biggest challenge, I think, as a city, is how do you tell this story? Right, is this your call to action? Right. So yes. Yeah, 
you know, how do we tell this story so that people really understand that it's we're there for them, right? We now have medication abor uh, abortion available in DOHMH health clinics. It, we just put the first one in the Bronx, so we move into Brooklyn and Manhattan by the end of the year, right? Um, it's, it's just amazing work. We are looking at issues of menstrual equity as well. Um, and that is a workbook that we're leading at the commission as well. So the, there are so many layers to this work. Um, and, and what I want to encourage everybody to do as we're here is to think about how you can learn more on this, you know, call Carlos or me. And we need ambassadors to talk about the transformation that New York's, the plan from the plan to the execution and to hold us accountable. Honestly, the, you know, it's a massive city and therefore there are things that can fall by the wayside, as you know. Um, I don't have to tell this group, I hope, that the other call to action is vote, 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 vote. Of course. Um, uh, it, it is, we're in a really precarious position. Our voter participation rate is way too low for any of us to be satisfied with it. I think for the last election, we're at 31%. It's really, really too low. And we, we can do better and should do better as a city. We're not afraid of diverse points of view because, you know, we're better if we have that. Um, and so I really think, you know, that's at least the two things. And last but not least, I want to share that the mayor has created, um, it's really something he did when he was Brooklyn Borough President. It's called Breaking Bread, Building Bonds. Being very concerned about the hatred and the violence in our streets and driven by racism, driven by sexism, that he is launching these um, in-home dinners. And you can go on the website. It's the Office of, hold on a minute. I want to get the acronym right. The Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes, OPHC. And on that website, any individual can sign up to be trained to host a breakfast in your home or a place that you may determine to create dialogue around issues of difference. And you, there's a worksheet, and, and we're doing it in partnership with the People's Supper. For me, that's the whole idea of grounding this work in people's lives, right? And we hope as a Commission on Gender Equity, we want to start in the fall with doing these, break, these uh, dinners with um, a gender equity theme. And we're going to go borrow by borrow so that we can get to focus on women. We have a lot of issues around LGBTQ. How do you make the space more welcoming? How do we ensure that families can create safe homes, that um, our workplaces can be safe, and that we can truly build this gender equitable society? I think this issue of scale is critical. We can pass all the laws we want, but our laws need to impact in New York City. At least four million people would be my guess right. for us to begin to see systemic change. And so we, we, we struggle. I know I struggle with the communications space on it. And, and you know, just, you know, I, I, I'm not a polit politician. I'm not an elected official. But to hear sometimes the pain in my mayor's voice when he talks about kind of that's not what I said, that's not what I meant. And you, you, you miss the, the substance and the point of transformation. And you know, we're all human beings, so we're gonna make mistakes. And, and so that grace to forgive, 
and, and look at that bigger picture is something else that I think we all need to learn. Yeah. Well, I think you have 30 people who will sign up here um, to be your ambassadors for gender equity. So, Jackie, thank you so much. And, um, you know, from her LDQ's perspective, um, we we are always also looking for allies. And so we're excited to hopefully participate in the in the, the March summit um, and other future things, especially related to gender equity and equality. And, um, you know, we look for partners and allies as well to continue our work. So if you know of you know, other corporations that would love to hear on about women's health and, and global health. We're always, you know, really interested to talk and to hear how the work that we do can translate back into, you know, the company, the employees. And this is what this is what millennials are looking for. This is what employees are looking for. This is this is the work that attaches to people's heart and keeps them engaged at work. And so these are the types of things that we want to bring to help you uh, um, as well. So, yes, I was going to say, I was going to give you a big round of like applause <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I just want to talk about a bit one of the conversations I remember and value so much. Um, as I, I'm, I'm an immigrant here, so I resonated totally with her health EQ's work and connection to developing nations. The fact that you called us developing nations versus third world countries. Oh. <laughs> yes, so, so that was important to me. But my focus with as a commission on gender equity is New York City. And so when Marissa and I started talking, I said, Marissa, I hear you, but New York City, we have some of the same outcomes. Yep. And so we started to have the discussion and, and the, the connection is that New York City is an immigrant city. Our population yes. doesn't grow without migration. Right? That, that's so true. Yes. And we can be the space from which, Marissa, we really talked a lot, I connected to her, to a few nonprofits yeah. locally, so that we could see if synergies would evolve. And so you may, we seem to come from different spaces, but we spent this dialogue recognizing the need, recognizing the vulnerabilities within New York City communities, which were very likely the same populations that she was addressing, right? Yeah. So the immigrant population, when we talk about COVID and the impact of in immigrant communities and the loss of lives, right? That's a really real thing for New York City. And so I think it was 44% of New Yorkers are naturalized citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, it's amazing how richly diverse we are and uh, in terms of our immigrant immigration population. And so there was such a connection between us. And I think that's, that's why we kept talking, because I recognize fully that her work and her mission was overseas. But many of those families may be connected to those overseas countries. And so it, it was a powerful partnership. No, thank, thank you. you. And uh, please uh, help me thank Jackie for being here and thank support you. her work. Thank you. And please eat, get some cocktails, come and talk to everybody. Thank you so much.